Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller, and on the show, in the One Side to Every Story Corporate Media Watch episode this week, not Iraq or Afghanistan. What's up with the mass unquestioning embrace of Ukraine's perspective, while the neo-McCarthyism blocking access to Russian media online, and what does it have to do with more than meets the eye, literally, apparently, that is, when it comes to the race of the enemy and why. There was little popular interest in contrast to opposing U.S. and allied bombings of third world nations. Well, this quote from the corporate media, European people with blue eyes and blonde hair are being killed. This is not a developing third world nation. This is Europe. Unquote. Political analyst and journalist Daniel Lazar weighs in. And I am not talking about Syrians who are fleeing the Assad regime supported by Vladimir Putin. I am talking about Europeans. This isn't a place, with all due respect, um, you know, like Iraq or Afghanistan. European people with blue eyes and blonde hair being killed, children being killed every day. This is not a developing third world nation. This is Europe. The implication is that it's okay in, uh, in far-off third-world countries, that we're free to bomb them as much as we want because they don't have blue eyes and blonde hair. I mean, it's, it's appalling. The American journalists enjoyed the show. They thought it was great fun. They thought it was a wonderful d- display of U.S. firepower. Now it's, uh, now it's not so much fun. I don't support this invasion. Let me make that perfectly clear. Um, but nonetheless, uh, the U.S. and NATO set the scene. You know, so shock and awe is a lot of fun as long as you're not the one being shocked and awed. But when you're on the receiving end, it's terrible. It's really Western hypocrisy. And coming up on Arts Express, professor and poet Laura Hinton reflects on the tragedy of war. In fact, all wars. Here's Laura Hinton. My name is Laura Hinton, and I'm a poet from the United States, living right now in Europe. And all I can think about at this time are the people in the Ukraine, the millions of lives in danger in Ukraine and surrounding Ukraine, and that country's multiple nuclear reactors, one of which I read is the largest in the world. 50% of Ukraine's energy grid is powered by nuclear energy. We know that Chernobyl was overtaken by Russian forces several days ago now, and that the Russians are in control of the Chernobyl cleanup. We know that the Russian nuclear arsenal is also the largest in the world today. Not that it matters, since one blown nuke is enough to devastate a continent, if not the globe. To put it mildly, we are in a very nuclear, unsafe zone. I'm going to share a poem that I started writing before the death of my father, finishing it after he died, as I did more research into his career flying and navigating B-52 war machines, carrying nuclear and other weapons of mass destruction. My father flew these during my childhood through the world's skies. And the poem is called, P is for Palomares or you saw nothing. It starts with a couple of quotes. The first is from Anne Waldman's brilliant 1982 poetry video, Uh-oh, Plutonium. Junk plutonium, love it, hate it. We'll all be glowing for a quarter of a million years. 
Teeth glowing, microfilm glowing, pages of words glowing, underwear glowing. The second quote is from the U.S. Spanish ambassador, Angier Biddle-Duke, who splashed his feet in the sea while giving reporters a tour of the Palomar AB-52 crash site in 1966. If this is radioactivity, I love it. 4 a.m. flashlight fog. Not like Ann Waldman's bright yellow one in the video. It hangs on the door, this jumpsuit of putrid gray-green, who zippers every which way and act a sound device of disappearances. Like zip goes the camel cigarette packs and metallic lighters. Zip goes the wadded spare pair underwear ball nested in beef jerky cellophane. Zip goes the dinner jacket elegant socks with plenty of holes in the heels. Zip goes the BX brand military issue toothbrush. By the dawn's early light, the jumpsuit disappears. Oh, say can you see? A little girl sees in the dark. Watching will make her a writer. Paper maps follow crevices over linoleum basement floor, pitting all connections from Wyoming to the Arctic Circle. Fake brick tiles form arcane surfaces of paper blown by winds or rushed by an indoor fan. Over against a neat courtly row, the 1950s Americana encyclopedias stand, a sound barrier against all knowledge radiating inside the warring American 20th century. World maps for in pages spreading global peace, but he was tricked, they tell you, by a savvy salesman ended up paying monthly installments for the gold-trimmed set, living on starvation lieutenant wages while your mother grew round and wide, like the antique globe on the wooden half-shelf, demarcating nation-states so out of date no one would ever understand who one hates. The Armstrong floor product hosting the Cold War scenario secret to a suburban den room, refurbished, basement, groomed, to the style of imitation wood paneling and picture frames so that no one later could explain, this is uncivilized, or any house but mine. And here he holds the silver compass of Blake's Newton. Numbers make revelations, crouched and crippled, oblivious to the beauty, mapping papers below his knees. He's not wearing bounties, masculine nakedness, but checkered boxer shorts from Fruit of the Loom and white undershirts with a V to determine the right figural airstream to fly Earth's gravitation 45,000 feet above hemispheric spin way beyond green graveyards and grim, upside-down blue waters, just to practice dropping the bomb over the great divide to kingdom come. It's family day at Ellsworth Air Force Base, 1965. You, dressed in blonde ringlets, the corn stalks growing. You, wearing flowered, flowing, ringing dress with ruffles. You, nine years old and sitting pretty on the seat of a parked B-52, squeezed into the hole your daddy disappears into. Flowering images like the dress are time's dials and measures. You flip the steel lovers, play with your daddy's nuclear bomb release. The poverty and ignorance you one day learn he grew upon, nourished by a Midwest dirt farm. White bread didn't produce a thing but muddy flowers and cheap corn at peak season when a cruel father signed the son up to work 12 years old after school in a grocery store stocking shelves way across town, walking there. The father takes the son's paycheck. No toilet to pay for but grocery bills. You recall the zippers in their grand finale serrated swing on stage and opera swishes zipping along. Fat lady sings, roaring her performance, climbing double chins. Oh, 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 say, can you sing? 
You still have the dancing senorita dolls, perpetually twirling flamenco on your silent bureau, the brown lace mantilla and matching plastic comb you wear in your hair, playing with your girlfriends in the neighborhood like you are the only dancer brought home to you, courtesy of the Cuban Missile Crisis. You don't know a thing about Castro or Russian nukes. He's whisked away from a Florida backyard barbecue. Your mother takes the toothbrush and the underwear right up to the gunning strata fortress, red eyes shooting, right, left snorting, tarmac engine spinning, disappearing, high to go on go pills, higher in the sky. You didn't know you would keep the lace mantilla and comb in a special drawer, handmade somewhere south of Salamanca, far south of Madrid, someplace foreign, like a dream you do not see or sight, blinded by sight, no word of him or the situation. Your mother is crying, sitting on a Kelly Green padded rocking chair alone in front of the black and white bulbous televised news report. Her children in a bed in a city whose waters rub elbows with Castro's sea. So you try to see your mother's tears out of bed, plucking your head off the jack and the beanstalk pillow cover, a savior in images snuggling into her wet lap. No, there are no words to show and tell this disappearing act. Your mother, the next day, teaches you how to run home from your first grade school, because when the Cubans and the Russians hit with nukes, she won't be able to pick you up. The traffic will be bad. It's only a few blocks, and you are watching. A snake on the ground takes cover under fanning nest of pointed palms. Your father is here, strangely. You see him. He takes a shovel, chops the snake into bits, kills it, safe, for a minute. Someone like your father is flying a routine errand on the sunny strata fortress assigned to park a plane per strategic air command orders. A plane in the wrong state's lot calls for a reparking mission. Per the wishes of the United States Air Force military commandment, SAC, as they say it, is a god. A desk clerk is called up to play tail gunner for this faux mission to serve his country. Guy doesn't have the right winter suit. No problem. It's not a real war job. It's cold. It's a blizzard coming from Michigan. We'll blast apart East Coast conditions. Weather disintegrating. Better run home to wife and children. Crew jumps their B-52, wings it high homeward. Storm hits another storm which they knew would happen in advance. Strata Fortress is an unhinged bird writhing in stratospheric hell up there. Oh, and on its way down, too, they also knew bad tail design. Plane breaks in two. Aluminum file slips off skin of the air snake. B-52 with nuclear bomb, like the storm itself, disintegrates. Midair explodes. Men eject in chairs as ordered, fly off into the heavens, all except one using the bathroom. Couldn't buckle back down in time to jet away. Plane turned upside down sideways. His body found inside ground wreckage. Another froze hanging from his parachute in a tree in the heavy mountain snow in a remote Maryland forest. His summer wear, not appropriate, didn't want this mission, just a parking job anyway, wanted to live to see his pregnant wife and baby crying through the snowfields, co-pilot with broken leg, died before he could drag his limp corpse to the lights of the old farmhouse where two arrived more dead than men, severely frostbitten. The local Maryland stonemason carted away the live nuke sat it on his flatbed truck full of rocks. It hadn't detonated yet, killing every plant and animal on the U.S. East Coast. This pilot, this hero, is recorded in the annals of the U.S. Air Force for glory and achievement, having survived the ravages of this homeside near nuclear accident. Pages of words glowing, underwear glowing. You try to find your father missing from the records. Oh, say, can you see? He's not there. 
You look for your father who is now dead, who doesn't exist on the web or in any ebook. They know he's dead. They gave your mother the folded flag. She filled out copious forms to stop her husband's retirement check to live in extended life's poverty in America. Very nice to have the flag. And you do find the USAF's general who had your dad's name, who loved your father like a son, who made sure he'd become a lieutenant colonel, a poor boy from the dirt farm. So your father could fly the Arctic Circle in a can of tin, navigate hundreds of missions, dropping them fast over Vietnam. The retrofitted Stratofortress pours out 108 bombs each day from Big Belly, 60,000 pounds so-called conventional warheads, meaning they devastate the hell out of the Ho Chi Minh Trail in secret Cambodian raids over the line, hushing backwoods along the backbone of mountains, those Viet Cong forming human supply chains against giant sky killer. Then break Hanoi, into pieces of tiny chopped clay, your father plopping these little bombs every 48 hours, leaving the island of sunny Guam, just enough time to sleep, shave, smoke, in between bombing days, so many bomb-adhering dead, Nixon ordered medals as criminal testimony, distinguished flying crosses shaped for Jesus Christ hanging in agony, death almighty stored in a box under glass. Statements go on about bombings and wiping out human heartbreak into slivered parts. Under the nest, the pointed palm fronds, is the snake wiggling back out. Still looking up his name, he must be named. Somewhere in the USAF annals you read, Hinton, Lieutenant Colonel Bruce H., Homer, Lieutenant Colonel Charles A. Mm, Hughes Aircraft Company, Entry 504. Skipping through Air Force Register's list of commissioned officers. Hintermeyer, Richard H. Paul Hinton, Hines, Elwood, page 220. Missing, you see nothing. Not your father, daddy of the paper fortress, not portrayed. Except through the high-ranking general who shared a name, who believed your father was so much a son to him, he sent him to hell, even missing from hell's indexes. Heroic annals of fire and brimstone, institutionalized ritual, killing hell. Sometime in an earlier era of Soviet paranoia, a stratofortress of SAC had another stratospheric up. While fueling the belly vibrato, a pole missed its mate's warm metal vaginal hole, traveled back through the mother canister of a monster. Collision ensued. Wreckage descended, mostly upon a Spanish village schoolyard and organic tomato field. Oh, say, can you see the fallout? Franco and the Pentagon were in charge. No one mentioned the nuclear debris falling from the kidneys, the broken B-52 urinating orange and blue, or the Spanish-speaking children who stopped playing in the schoolyard dismembered, or the two craters that bookmarked this southern Spanish village which is named Palomares, forever lined with plutonium dust. You see local fishermen of the Mediterranean Sea peek over bomb craters, shake their heads. Ooh, see, can you say? The young USAF men dispatched to the cleanup site, taking a break, eating lunch with feet dangling over big radioactive hole, eating the organic tomatoes, energy leaching, up their teenage boy legs, almost hairless like your dad's, boys from the farm no one visits or mentions or records these events, except the same insignificant Spanish villagers or local fishermen. Oh, say, can you see? Youngsters, technically military cadets, just out of American poverty, told to do their duty. Don't question, don't ask. Handful of newspaper reporters on a tired beat take note, we're told, guys in white overalls are just a postal detachment. 
liars come like dirty bombs to minimize, to assimilate the story. And who needs gloves? Troops plow, tomato fields flooded with the dust of their innocence, like cooks with no training, radioactivity zipping along, zippy! Breakfast, lunch, and dinner, we had those tomatoes until we were sick of them, words decades later, says one of them. The USAF scoops a total of 5,300 barrels of charred earthen residue, loads barrels of radioactive debris on a ship bound for South Carolina. Orange, yellow, blue, we'll all be glowing! Plutonium is radiating for a quarter of a million years. One nuclear warhead is lost at sea. The Joint Chiefs focus on finding their precious nuke baby adrift hoping it doesn't bump into their ally, France. Little Warhead shows back up months later, almost intact. No mention, little boo-boo, lost nuke, no reported spillage of fine plutonium core over Spanish houses and farms, a quarter of a million years. Say, can you see? If there's nothing to see, you can't see him. You saw nothing nor inhale, nothing to worry about. Stop questioning, stop complaining, believe your officer, imbibe the dusty tomato, eat lunch, dinner with your bare hands, shovel the dirt, farmers, you are used to untangling the vexing myth of who's disappearing. Is it news, truth, or class? Who misses this absence, this going away? This neglect of sexual satisfaction when emasculation occurs at 45,000 feet above Cold War political expediency. No names in the indexes or fatal rosters. The military cleanup men disappear for decades. White out pace over the typewriter of medical records. The names. Frank B. Thompson, cancer in the liver, lungs, and kidney. Arthur Kidler, Testicular cancer and a rare lung infection. John H. Garman, bladder cancer. John Young, dead of cancer. Dudley Easton, dying of cancer. Vermonsky, diseased cancer. Medical records sanitized. No diseases exist. No men exist. You see nothing. Your father missing. Change the grammar, rewrite the verbal form. Letters to the Veterans Administration are wanting. They denied I was even there. Then they denied there was any radiation. I submit a claim and they deny. I submit appeals, they deny. We are all almost dead. The nearly dead speak for the disappearing record. Louis says to his lover, the nameless L, in a motion picture filmed in black and white where the bomb exploded in air, you saw nothing at Hiroshima. Your father never saw himself as dead. The retirement checks would be mailed forever to a plugged-in zombie until one night he did disappear on the breeze of a sedated dream on the way to Thailand from Guam, holding a dancing girl in his palm because for 20 years he sat in the cavern of a rumbling mechanical death squad, the strangest Icarus ever seen above Earth's bubble, smoking camels and punching buttons.
And next on Arts Express, with the world in its currently volatile and unpredictable state, where exactly does or can the arts and culture fit in? Iranian filmmaker Shara Makri addresses these issues in his often surreal, experimentally crafted work, recently the subject of a New York City retrospective and soon-to-be-released collection. In particular, Makri's first-ever fictional film on the subject, Careless Crime, that is said to be a major event precipitating the 1978 Iranian Revolution, the politically motivated torching of the Cinema Rex Theater, leading to the deaths of nearly 500 people in attendance. First, some background, a crash course of sorts about those events, a production of Empowering Explanation. Then Sharon Mokri phoning in from D.C. The Iranian Revolution, 1978-1979 During World War II, Iran and Germany were close trade partners. This concerned the Allies, and led Britain and the USSR to demand the expulsion of all Germans from Iran. When the Shah did not oblige, Iran was occupied. Under pressure, the Shah surrendered the throne to his son, Mohammad Reza. The United States and Britain saw Reza as the key to their goals in Iran. Together, they removed all opposition of the Shah and allowed him to take power. The Shah began his attempt to modernize Iran and gain power, and set reforms which ignored traditional Islamic law. Meanwhile, Ayatollah Khomeini, a man who opposed the Shah's rule, gained power. He considered the Shah to be an enemy of Islam, who ignored the welfare of his people. These ideas resonated with Iranians of all classes and ideologies. In January of 1978, after a negative article was published about Khomeini, theology students protested and were killed by the Iranian army. By Islamic custom, after 40 days peaceful protests were held. However in the city of Tabriz, government forces who were sent in to control the demonstrations ended up killing over 100 people. This cycle continued, with the government killing thousands of protesters. Finally, in December of 1978, two million took to the streets of Tehran in protest. Immediately after the revolution, similar uprisings in Mecca and other countries became popular. Many many wars around the country began. Also, after the Shah had been overthrown, his military fell apart. Top generals fled the country while lower-ranking officers stayed in support of the revolution. In the long term, a new government system known as the Islamic Republic was put into place in Iran with Khamenei as the new leader. This caused a long-term negative relationship with the United States. Hello and welcome. Uh, thank you. Hello. Uh, thank you for having me in your uh, uh, show and I'm happy for that. Thank you. Okay. What led you to want to make a film about the Cinema Rex fire? Um, uh, you know, the tragedy of Cinema Rex is a famous story in Iran. Uh, there are still many uh, uh, ununderstanded questions about it. This event is um, considered as an open case uh, every year and as its adversary approach again. Uh, you know, the film Dear, which was shown in uh, uh, cinemas at, the, at that time of uh, this event is one of the most important film in the history of Iranian cinema. Uh, a famous actor named Behuz Vusuri plays in the most famous uh, superstar in the history of Iranian cinema. And, uh, you know, people are talked about him as a hero. In fact, uh, this tragedy is still alive, and uh, uh, no fiction film has been made about it in Iran, in Iran cinema so far. Uh, on the other hand, I like making movies about the cinema industry, films that choose cinema as the main theme. In my previous films, I have 
I have um, clear references to the cinematic genre. In uh, Curtis Crime, I uh, decided to make a film related to the history of Iranian cinema. And how, in your perspective on those events, do you connect them to the Iranian Revolution? You know, if I want to mention only one event in uh, which the history of cinema and the history of uh, social events are very close, is this the tragedy of cinema rights. Uh, as you can, as you can see, these uh, these uh, tragedy happened in just a few months before the victory of Iranian Revolution, and it's uh, one of the most important events that uh, you know uh, angered the people. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, many people were burned in the cinema hall, and the uh, political groups involved in the revolution. Uh, 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 each uh, blamed uh, uh, the other. You've been compared to both Hitchcock and Tarantino. How do you react? And do you agree or not? You, you know, uh, you know. I'm uh, actually. I have to say, I'm happy for that. I'm happy for that. I, I, I'm so glad. It's like uh, being a, a footballer or soccer and being uh, uh, compared to Pele and Messi. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Both of these filmmakers are my heroes. I feel in love with cinema with Hitchcock and spend my uh, yacht with uh, 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 Tarantino and his films. Uh, yeah, yeah. And how would you say your roots in Iranian culture have influenced and inspired you as a filmmaker? You would be surprised when you see how much this uh, love for cinemas is among the Iranian yacht. Uh, yeah, uh, you know that the, the American film industry is a huge industry with many of the uh, uh, best in the world working on it, uh, and it's uh, and I know and I know it's uh, it's uh, normal, uh, but I think Iranian cinema is less known in the United States. Uh, but it's not about the generation of Iranian filmmakers; it's only just about uh, one or two filmmakers. Uh, you know, uh, when I want to say about the uh, culture, uh, uh, I'm sorry. I, th- I you know, um, you know. I think modern Iranian cinema can find its own audience uh, among Amer- Americans. It has always been uh, uh, fascinating for films audience in the United States to see new filmmakers' uh, culture. Uh, uh, what has happened uh, uh, to Korean and Turkish cinema no could happen to Iranian cinema in the future in the U.S. Uh, all the uh, generation of Iranian filmmakers working outside of, the, of Iran can create a good mix of Iranian and American films culture. You know, uh, is there some directors, for example, Anna Lelia Amipur or Ali Abbasi are doing such things in the U.S.? Uh, I look at uh, this combination very hopefully. Uh, you, you, you know, I, I'm completely new in the uh, 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 in the U.S. and in the Washington. I made my previous movies in Iran, but I want to uh, do maybe the new one in the U.S. Uh, I, I'm very new in in this country, and and, and I want uh, and always it's a it's a goal for me to make a movie out of Iran, and I want to try my chance here in the U.S. You, uh, you know, I'm I'm working on it, and I, 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 you know, I'm a I'm a teacher. I'm a professional uh, teacher my, uh, myself, and uh, uh, always I I'm uh, I want to be in the classrooms with the uh, with the students uh, like a teacher, and I want to try uh, for it everywhere uh, out of the Iran, for example, here in the U.S. What are your hopes for Iran and the tensions that exist with this country? Um, you know, I see um, I, 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 I see common uh, roots in the uh, in, uh, you know uh, uh, wait. I think Iran is an uh, is in a sensitive time. I, I I think Iran is in a sensitive time, and I feel that Iran is. Uh, uh, eager to 
the world. Uh, on the other hand, I know it will not be easy with a 50-year history of uh, distrust. You know, uh, countries in the Middle East are you know, distrustful of each other because of those on a problem, and Western countries are uh, complicating the situation with their uh, policy uh, instead of... Uh, uh, creating this trust. For example, look at Afghanistan and Iraq in the uh, similarity of Iran. It's not uh, a, a comfortable area for politics. I hope that the uh, 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 Vienna agreement, you know, Vienna agreement between Europe and the US and the Iran will be uh, uh, reached soon. You know, uh, I hope for that. For, uh, same uh, first stop. And have you ever been a victim of prejudice or harassment personally or politically as an Iranian in this country? You know, I'm working on a new script, and I, uh, it, it's a kind of horror movie, experimental uh. horror movie, and I want to shoot it uh, here very soon. If this movie is about, it is a horror movie, and also it's about the uh, uh, identity. You know, when uh, it's about identity and about your body, about when you are talking about your body and what's your feel about your body and about your identity when you are in a in a, a completely in a new country where you are ah. in a completely in a, you know, like a stranger, like a stranger in a new country. What's your feel about your body and about your identity? Uh, you, you know, I, I know when we are talking about immigrant story, maybe uh, we are talking, we are thinking about the cliche, but uh, we, uh, but it's not it's not that kind of immigrant story. You know, I uh, it's it, uh, I want mix the, uh, the that uh, familiar story with a, a genre and uh, in an experimental way. Okay, thank you for calling in. Thank, thank you so much for uh, your time, and sorry if my English is not fluent. I will be better very soon, I promise you. Ha, thanks again. Thank you, bye. And the retrospective of Sharon Mockery's films will be released as The Time-Bending Mysteries of Sharon Mockery from Grasshopper Films this spring. And now, with the Oscar Awards out later this month, we'll go out with Don't Look Up, a film this past year that takes a rare look on what's actually happening out there in the real world, or does it? Here's In Frames Out, Paul of the Poles, with his critique of Don't Look Up. Competing for Best Picture, Best Original Screenplay and Score, and Film Editing on March 27th at the Academy Awards. Don't trip! It's all good! Don't trip! Oh, hey, hey now! At the 79th Annual Academy Awards, Will Ferrell, Jack Black and John C. Riley came together in an ode to the unsung comedians who sit out every awards season. And it's wonderful. I thought I'd get to have dinner with Jeremy Hyatt. <laughs> By the end of the bit, they hit upon a solution. Just roll some prestige dramas or stirring biopics into your showboating repertoire, and so too can those shiny statues be yours. He's right. I'm gonna reread that script about the guy who gets lead poisoning and then sues a major corporation. There's not a laugh in there! Yes! It's a sardonic observation that writer-director Adam McKay seems to have taken as a personal challenge. One that eventually led to Oscar's glory with 2015's The Big Short. Smash cut to the tail end of 2021 as Don't Look Up streaked across the horizon, burning bright with red carpet royalty and a righteous message of incalculable importance. We're trying to tell you this whole time, it's right there! It's so why is the result a sustenance-free satire that feels so completely to engage on any political, intellectual, or human level, by the end you'll be rooting for your own annihilation? 
Don't Look Up follows two astronomers and their futile, increasingly farcical attempts to save the world from an approaching comet. There's 100% certainty of impact. Please, don't say 100%. Can we just call it a potentially significant event? Yeah. Yes. It's a film that takes aim at those who would choose cash-in-hand comfort and blissful ignorance over our continuing existence, and it does so under the guise of a boisterous satire, one in which political leaders, corporations and the general public bury their collective heads in the sand and refuse to acknowledge their impending oblivion. It's roughly 5 to 10 kilometres wide. An extinction level event. Well, let's not be dramatic here. The most timeless, affecting works of satirical comedy tend to apply surgical precision and a scalpel-like sharpness to their concerns and critiques. McKay knows this as well as anyone. Ask yourself the question, what's my audience? Who am I talking to? How do I want to talk to them? How do I want them to respond? And you've got to be really specific about that. We just made a decision that we were going to try and talk to the broadest audience possible. We weren't going to make a niche movie for certain groups of people. We were going to try and do the biggest movie we could. Everyone should be panicking right now, okay? Don't cry. Come on. Which isn't to say you can only take on one adversarial entity at a time. Sorry to Bother You challenges capitalistic structures, slavery and racial power dynamics without ever feeling overstuffed, Dr. Strangelove takes on Cold War hysteria, nationalism and sexually repressed American masculinity. The difference between those good examples and a woefully poor effort like Don't Look Up is the difference between lining up several expertly aimed successive shots at defined targets and indiscriminately firing a blunderbuss into a random crowd. McKay's claims of intentional broadness only extend so far as assembling an eye-watering cast of industry darlings and ensuring they never stray from the one joke they have to tell. I hope you find the concept of absurd denial in the face of certain destruction both humorous and harrowing, because it's just about the only gag you're gonna hear for the next two hours. Every single man, woman, and child on this planet is going to die. We're all 100% for sure gonna die! And I think we're all gonna die! Oh, tell me we're all gonna die, dude. We're all gonna die. Oh, oh boy. McKay has responded to the mixed critical consensus surrounding Don't Look Up by effectively saying, if you don't like it, it's because you don't get it. That's not entirely accurate. The comet is an obvious stand-in for the encroaching catastrophe of climate change. The public officials who ignore or attempt to exploit the comet for their own ends are scented shampoo takes on real political and corporate stooges. This is just Fox News with a more tasteful wardrobe. But as we all learned from Deep Impact and Armageddon, it's not enough to lob conventional weapons at the surface of a problem. Don't Look Up doesn't care about articulating facts in a digestible manner that promotes discussion or environmental activism, nor is it looking to reach across the aisle and discuss the hows and whys of climate denialism or the growing trends towards the right wing's weaponization of environmental agendas. No, the whole thing just feels a lot like this Simpsons clip. It's so gratifying to leave you wallowing in the mess you've made. You're screwed. Thank you. Bye. It's just spread thin cynicism. That is so refreshing. Mm. I think we're all tired of the politics. Yeah, yeah. Satire is a creative tool whereby mocking disbelief, comedic barbs, and bitterly ironic contrivance are meant to inform and mobilize an audience against those who callously fail them. None of which lands here, in part because the central premise is inherently flawed. By using a comet as an allegory for climate change, they're conflating and confusing two extremely different problems. Global warming is a slow-moving, almost intangibly complicated issue. It's been on the horizon since the Industrial Age, 
and the ways in which we aim to offset it will gradually alter the economic, geographical, technological and sociological landscape of the entire planet. There's a disconcerting amount of scepticism and denial because the effects are so gradual and abstract, measured in the change of decimals over decades. To some the answers seem expensive and unproven. Then you've got to factor in the jobs, stability and voter bases built around carbon emitting industries. What McKay does with this completely unfit allegory is narrow the end of day's shame and blame to American apathy, Trumpism, daytime television and social media, all of which came long after the advent of greenhouse gases. In short, there is nothing in common between the cause, effect and contingencies in place to prevent climate change and a massive comet, and once your allegory falls apart, all you're left with are these wake-up sheeple generalities. And do you know why they want you to look up? Do you know why? Because they want you to be afraid! So let's look beyond the United States. What about the other 7.5 billion living, breathing, polluting people on this pale blue dot? Well, Don't Look Up doesn't seem to care. Sure, there's one lip service scene where they toss out, uh, some other nations gather together to try and fix the problem but they screwed up because they are also idiots, and it's a shoulder shrug at best, and at worst, yet another entry in McKay's long line of movies that lament how self-absorbed and insular America is, whilst contributing to, reinforcing and doing nothing to challenge, that same brand of American exceptionalism. I know a lot of this sounds harsh, but I actually really like Adam McKay, and he used to be able to tackle issues without this unbearable smugness. Anchorman was about how the news suddenly changed from a journalistic document into infotainment, Talladega Nights ruffled the hair of blindly patriotic narcissism, the other guys even managed to meld its wacky weirdness with the murky underbelly of corporate accountability. Then came the big short, a funny, informative, albeit flagrantly westernised look at the 2007 global financial crisis and it proved McKay's knack for sugaring the pill of serious concerns. And then an unfortunate thing happened. He began to fancy himself as an important filmmaker, which is why 2018's Vice felt like two hours of abhorrently edited screeching about the many ways in which human whoopee cushion Dick Cheney is evil, and it's that same brand of knee-rubbing, state-the-obvious aggrandizing smeared all over the lens with Don't Look Up, a film that opts for two equally unappealing flavours of farce. First, there's the everyone's to blame centrist fallacy, where the general public and daytime TV are given just as much scrutiny as the government and big tech. Then we have the second flavour, one I like to call preaching to the choir whilst crucifying the deplorables. Predominantly white upper middle class intellectualism is being prevented from saving us because everyone else is an asshole, too poor, or too stupid to matter, which is a tongue-clucking, classist, ethnically one-note mentality that teaches nothing, alienates those most likely to need information, and writes off anyone without immediate or unfettered access to non-partisan coverage of the facts. As Andy Meek perfectly puts it, this is all just a primal scream from the adherents to a cause who look down on the people they ostensibly want to save. No human was ever de-radicalised, no catastrophe ever de-escalated. By kicking it in the chin and calling everyone who disagrees with you a If you need any evidence of that, just look at what happened in 2016. This is, this is my fault, people like me. When are we going to learn? The left have given up putting any argument across at all to the point where Clinton is considered left, liberal. Throwing insults doesn't work anymore. The only thing that works is doing something and all you have to do is engage in the debate. Talk to people who think differently to you and persuade them of your argument. It's so easy and the left have lost the art.
socially conscious satire and cinema go together like Quentin Tarantino and open-top sandals. All of these films show strength to power, gluttonous self-destruction, governmental ineptitude, and societal imbalance, whilst keeping their eye on the prize of entertaining and understanding their audience. McKay's hypocritical half-measures don't belong in the same discussion as the existential climate change nightmare of First Reformed or the exaggerated opulent waste of Wally. No, Don't Look Up is more like a prestige, best-picture-baiting take on idiocracy, albeit with slightly less eugenics. This is a film content to just cower behind its blatantly correct thesis that global warming is kind of a big deal, without the empathy or exploratory instinct to understand its nemesis. Nothing here is serious, engaging, or revelatory enough to earn its groan-inducing, tonally noxious circle-jerking. It holds fast to an allegorical interpretation of a truth most of us fundamentally believe, but one delivered with such smug, vinegar-stroking arrogance, it's closer to the pointing Spider-Man meme than a coherent message. And after trekking through this desperately unfunny, mean-spirited rot, the end of the world as we know it sounds absolutely fine to me. This is In Frame Out. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.